Hello and welcome to the BSG Trainees podcast. My name's James Kennedy and I'm a gastroenterology trainee in the Thames Valley. Today's guest is Professor Shuan Thomas Gibson. Professor Thomas Gibson is Professor of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy at Imperial College London. She has been a consultant gastroenterologist at St Mark's Hospital since 2006 and is currently Dean of the Hospital. Her clinical interests are in advanced endoscopic imaging and complex therapeutic endoscopy. After graduating from Imperial College London, she trained in gastroenterology and completed an MD in improving training and assessment in colonoscopy in 2006. She is passionate about endoscopy training and standards in colonoscopy and was chair at JAG, the Joint Advisory Group on Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, from 2017 to 2020. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. So, first of all, can you talk to us a bit about what inspired you to uh, become a gastroenterologist? Uh, yeah, that's quite an, an easy answer to that question. It was a boss that I had when I was uh, what was then called an SHO in the um, early 1990s at Northwick Park Hospital, which is um, coincidentally where I've been a consultant for the last 15 years. So there was a superb gastroenterologist uh, called Jonathan Levi, who was the senior gastroenterologist. There were only two gastroenterologists there at that time. Um, And he absolutely loved the specialty. And uh, post-MRCP, I was a little bit lost as to what to do. I knew I quite liked a practical specialty. I thought about doing cardiology. I did a bit of medical ITU down in Brighton. Um, But neither of those things um, really hit, hit the note for me and so I went to Jonathan having been his SHO I went back to see him for some careers advice and um, I guess you would say he sort of took me under his wing and persuaded me uh, didn't take much persuasion to apply for the registrar posts that were uh, that were being advertised at that time and it was an easy thing for him to do because he absolutely loved his specialty Uh, he encouraged us as junior doctors He was always enthusiastic about his patients. He was adored by his patients um, and he was very, very supportive. Uh, So I I think for me, gastroenterology was sold to me by him and uh, his colleague, Meryn Jacina, who is still uh, now one of my colleagues uh, at Northwick Park. Brilliant. Um, And how about your route into endoscopy specifically? So there's a quite easy answer to that question as well. Um, as a junior registrar, like like most, I think, I struggled particularly with colonoscopy. I enjoyed it as a, as a practical uh, part of the specialty, but I was, found it very frustrating to learn. And my early trainers, um, albeit that they were very you know, keen and supportive, couldn't really describe to me what was happening uh, during a colonoscopy. And I went to a BSG meeting. Um, At that time, there were two BSG meetings a year. And I remember sitting in a presentation um, by, um, uh, you know, one of the senior endoscopists at that time, presenting the first data on the image guidance or what's now known as scope guide um, manufactured by um, one of the big uh, endoscopy companies. And they were doing preliminary work at St. Mark's uh, on scope guide and how that could help colonoscopy. And it was one of those light bulb moments um, because it triggered two things. One, it showed me something about endoscopy and colonoscopy that made sense. 
And secondly, that there was research into how to teach a practical technique, which was uh, mind-blowing, really. And following that, I went along to one of the first live endoscopy uh, training courses at St. Mark's, where there were just six, five or six of us in a small room that's now our research fellows office um, mm-hmm. and and watched live endoscopy with the scope guide and it suddenly made uh, a whole lot more sense and so I uh, I enthused about this and managed to get a, a, um, a research uh, post after a, a part-time clinical post at St Mark's and never looked back I would say. So that led to your um, to your MD, was that right? So That's right. Yeah. So I, uh, so I, I mean, I guess I should uh, give all credit to Christopher Williams, who's now retired, and Brian Saunders, who's now my colleague. Um, they really were that inspiration and superb trainers and mentors. Uh, and I did my MD uh, with uh, Brian as um, as my primary supervisor, and the late Wendy Atkin uh, was my other uh, supervisor for my MD at St Mark's. Yeah. There's a common theme there, isn't there, from your SHO years, registrar years, and during your MD of of inspirational people and and mentors. And I know that's something you've you've taken forward as a consultant. Um, what can you talk to us about your relationship with mentorship and and how important you think it is? Yes. Um, so I mean, they were they those people that I've mentioned were you know, truly, you know, inspirational and they weren't formal mentors there. I don't think any of them had done a a BSG mentorship course, but they were the sort of old style mentor where um, I think if you're enthusiastic and show um, enthusiasm for uh, a subject area or a research field, um, as as a as anyone, but as a, in our case, as a junior doctor, um, you know, senior people take to that because you show a degree of commitment and you know mutual interest. And I felt very well supported by um, by the team at St Marks at that time, um, including Wendy uh, and and Brian Saunders. And I I suppose that's taught me in a way how important uh, role modelling is and. Uh, how supportive you can be to people starting out their career and how influential it can be, uh, even in in an informal setting. So uh, probably about five years ago now, the BSG set up the um, mentorship scheme and I was very keen to get involved in that. And so I did the training that was provided uh, by the BSG. And the idea was Um, particularly uh, to support women in gastroenterology and provide mentorship for that. But of course, it's quite rightly branched out now, so it's broader than that. Um, And over the last few years, I've had several, uh, you know, formal mentoring relationships with um, gastroenterologists and more recently a senior uh, GI nurse uh, in, in a senior leadership role. And of course, it's rewarding both ways. It isn't just the mentee that potentially gains from that relationship. The mentor definitely does as well. Uh, So I think that's been a fantastic um, innovation by the BSG and one that uh, I would encourage people to take part in and hopefully they will continue. And you've had a you've taken that passion of um, for passion for endoscopy training forward and, and you've had a pivotal role in endoscopy training in the UK during your career what do you what have you enjoyed the most about the aspect of your your job currently and and your time with JAG 
Uh, well, I think the really the best bit of my job has always been um, to provide, you know, really high quality colonoscopy to patients. You know, colonoscopy is, you know, in any situation for patients, um, you know, anxiety provoking uh, and potentially embarrassing. You know, you have to take a bowel preparation with all the anxiety that that entails. You know, uh, the actual procedure itself is, of course, very invasive. Um, patients are often coming either because they've been told they might have cancer or they've got symptoms that they're worried are cancer uh, or other significant diagnoses. Uh, and a lot of my patients in particular have, um, uh, you know, conditions that predispose them to cancer. So they know they've got a cancer risk. And so trying to provide a service that um, patients feel willing to, to come for their procedure and more importantly, return if they have to return is, is really, really important. And so I have narrowed down my practice um, quite incredibly, you know, to, to mostly being colonoscopy and certainly luminal and uh, luminal gastroenterology. But I enjoy that focus that that, that, that brings. I remember thinking back uh, at Christopher Williams when I first met him, thinking, gosh, that's quite strange. You know, he he only really does colonoscopy. But of course, here I am, you know, a couple of decades later doing exactly the same. And, and that's because it is an infinitely um, variable and challenging procedure to do. Um, it's a joy to teach it. So that's the other highlight. I've been teaching a train the trainers course this week uh, with our senior fellows and Passing on that knowledge um, and enthusiasm is something that you know is a is definitely a privilege of my job. Um, regarding JAG, well, again, that was um, you know that was sort of almost icing on the cake, really, to be in a position to be able to, in some way, influence and support the fantastic work that JAG has always done. Uh, for UK endoscopy was great fun. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I was there for three years as uh, chair of JAG, but prior to that, I was the uh, several years ago. I was the first subgroup um, training uh, lead for the QAT group, um, and you know we. It's difficult to make changes. It's difficult to uh, influence at sort of. Department of Health or government levels or devolved nations for for anybody uh, in any specialty. But uh, during my time in JAG, we were able to at least talk to those leaders and have some impact through either NHS England or um, uh, HEE, so Health Education England and so on. Um, so we were mixing with those people, with the GERF team, with CQC, uh, and making sure that high quality endoscopy was uh, seen quite rightly as being, you know, an important aspect of of healthcare in the UK, and of course, JAG has a fantastic international reputation, and so to be part of that was, um, you know, was great fun and a real privilege. That's really exciting, and um, from magnetic scope imaging right up to you know AI in in colonoscopy, you, you've seen leaps and bounds um, in, in endoscopy and colonoscopy. Um, over your career, what what do you think is the most important thing that has changed over the past fifteen years? Whether it's in constantly training or or the procedure itself or the technology, and what and and then I guess the second part of the question, looking forward, what do you think the next fifteen years will will have in store for us? 
So I, 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 you know, I've often asked this question. I've given it a lot of thought, and I would say, um, really, one of the main changes over the last, you know, fifteen years or so has been the, certainly in the UK, the focus on um, developing high quality training and training methodology. And in fact, just on this course that we were teaching in the last few days, we were talking about the development of teaching and training and certification um, and a lot of that I've been you know lucky enough and really enjoyed to be part of so you know years ago when I trained there was no jets there was no sign off you were just given the go-ahead when your bod uh, when your boss gave you the nod um, and so delivering high quality endoscopy for all patients really has changed leaps and bounds in the last 15 years with all of the um, certification processes that have been, uh, you know, introduced, uh, whether it's the DOPS or the DOPIS or um, the non-technical skills training framework. Um, so all of those things, I think, have really changed endoscopy for the masses because um, now every endoscopist has to go through that training and certification uh, program. Of course, there have also been massive developments in the sort of uh, therapeutics like um, the development of uh, ESD in this country or full thickness resection devices or POEM for upper GI um, you know, pathology. Uh, of course, there have been massive leaps and bounds in the therapy that we can deliver. And that's really important and very exciting. However, doing a good diagnostic procedure well is what's important to you know a very large number of patients, and so for me, I think that's the biggest contribution uh, and the biggest development over the last fifteen years. And going forward, um, you know, I'm not sure that artificial intelligence will replace that. Not in the next fifteen years. We still will be pushing scopes. I think for the next fifteen years at least. I mean, there are obviously developments like capsule and colon capsule um but you, you know they'll detect polyps and i think in the next 15 years we'll have to still go in and get those polyps you know as a human um but of course ai which is really exciting and you know just coming on board so so rapidly in terms of both detection of lesions and abnormalities and their their diagnosis and it's it's really exciting to see that happening um you know for those of us who are perhaps a little bit skeptical i think you know the word skepticism is associated with being over the age of 40 you're bound to be skeptic uh, skeptic um so for those of us who are perhaps a little perhaps a little bit skeptical you know we're seeing that it does it does work and so i think ai is uh, you know going to be a really exciting area um, and I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention some of the work that Boo Hay at King's is doing, uh, looking into sustainable uh, endoscopy and a greener endoscopy. You know, the stats for uh, how environmentally unfriendly endoscopy is are really are horrifying. So I really hope that in the next decade we can sort that out and, uh, and make endoscopy greener uh, as well as, um, you know, using some of the newer technologies. And, and maybe the newer technologies will help with that. That's really exciting that endoscopy is looking to become more sustainable and think about its impact on the wider world. Is that through yeah. things like water use with cleaning equipment? Oh, everything from minimizing the number of appointments that patients have to come to so that they're they're not driving their cars to and from the hospital unnecessarily that they're not having unnecessary procedures to um, the waste that's involved every time you use a snare 
Um, for example, do you have to use, you know, uh, you know, different snares for different polyps? I mean, of course, the teaching is, yes, you do. But, you know, can we think about that differently? Can we recycle parts of the snare? Um, you know, should we, are we able to use water or is there, you know, sterile water? Is there a better way of doing it? But also even the, the most basic things like, you know, the empty box, when you take the last glove out of the cardboard box, are you making sure that you put that cardboard box in a recycling bin as opposed to in, mm-hmm. you know, heaven forbid, the yellow, um, you know, soiled waste bins, which, you know, really are um, dreadful? You know, are we recycling where we can? So there's a whole um, piece of work that uh, is now being led uh, by, as I say, Boo Hay based in Kings. Uh, and there's a huge amount of opportunity there uh, to try and make things greener. Uh, and I really hope, in fact, it'll be a plug because we're hoping to have a fellow soon. So if anyone is interested, do um, either get in touch with Boo or ourselves because we are looking for fellows to take on that work in the form of an MD or PhD uh, in in the next year or so. Excellent. So that, that's a really, just a really um, a combination about between doing things that we already do better and then exciting new new technology to, to look yeah. forward to. Um, and, and for yourself, what would you, this might be a difficult question, but what would you say your proudest achievement is to date, either within or without medicine? Oh, well, without medicine, I'm going to have to say my three sons, aren't I? Um, uh, and, uh, and quite right. So, so I am a mum. I've got three children, um, grown up children, really, uh, you know, who uh, are fine young men. And they've, um, they've become that in spite of me, you know, working very long hours for very many years. Um, but I reckon that, you know, having a working, hardworking mum is a good role model for any uh, young person. So so that's that's definitely my proudest achievement outside of medicine. Um, inside of my career, um, I was made an imperial professor, a professor of practice uh, just last year, actually. And so that's got to have been, um, got to be my proudest achievement because it um, it recognises the work, the collective work that I've done really over, you know, the 25 years that I've been in gastroenterology and specifically in endoscopy. And it's particularly sweet because I trained at Imperial. So, you know, I started at uh, what was St. Mary's and became Imperial in, you know, 1986, a very long time ago. Um, and, and then to get a chair there, you know, so many years later, um, really as a result of work that I've done with so many people, so many research fellows, uh, so many people, you know, largely at St. Mark's, um, but also outside of St. Mark's. You know, that's um, that's definitely my proudest academic uh, and professional achievement. A real feeling of having come come full circle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The only way is down. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, you, and in terms of kind of balancing... Balancing family life and, and life outside of work, and the, I th- you've you've spoken very well on on less than full time training in the past. Mm. Do you mind speaking to no. to how how you found that throughout your career? Yeah, it was absolutely essential. So I was uh, less than full time uh, for goodness for the end of my um, registrar years, if I'm allowed to call them that. So from really when I started having kids until my um, youngest was, I don't know, about, you know, went to senior school. So it was almost a decade probably as a senior uh, registrar and then as a uh, as a junior consultant, I worked um, between, you know, 60 and 80% time. 
And during that time, I managed to um, do my MD and write it up, um, get finish my clinical training, uh, do my uh, you know, become a, a consultant, uh, probably supervised two or three other MDs during the early years as a consultant, um, you know, and did some of the other work with BSG and JAG as, as a less than full-time um, doctor, if not trainee. I was very lucky in that uh, when I was a registrar, uh, at registrar level, there were very few uh, female gastroenterologists and uh, and therefore job sharing wasn't very easy to do so most of us were supernumerary posts um, which meant that we were seen as a as an extra a funded extra pair of hands in whatever hospital that we worked in um, and so for example I believe you're working in the Royal Barks I finished my training in the Royal Barks and I was an extra you know, senior registrar. So you're quite welcome at that level, um, you know, helping out with clinics and endoscopy lists and so on. But it gave me the flexibility to, you know, to get what I needed to finish my training. And I do recognise that that's not necessarily the same if you're in a, a job share post, uh, you know, these days. But it did allow me to um, have a family. Um, I had a lot of help throughout uh, throughout my kids growing up, you know, external help in terms of a nanny. Um, uh, so, but it did allow me to have children, to be involved in bringing them up and a little bit of, you know, uh, school and mum life during the week, but also to progress my career. And I would have to say that being less than full-time, and being a mum of three kids, um, I can't say has hampered, you know, my my progression at all. I don't think, you know, I got there a bit later than some. Um, but I, I think it's just, uh, you know, it's been a fantastic journey. So I, I can't complain at all. Um, but I think if you if you have the opportunity to do that, then I would encourage people, whether you're, you know, a man or a woman to do it. It'll only enrich your life and it doesn't have to be forever and as I say I've gone back to being full-time now for you know for very many years so uh you know it it is possible to to do that that's really good to hear and, and what about uh, what are your loves outside of medicine what, what do you do to to wind down and well, we're very lucky we live in the Buckinghamshire countryside. Um, so I walk out of the back of my, you know, house or the front of my house and then we just, you know, in, into the fields and the Chiltern countryside. So I um, I walk, walk with family, walk with friends. I do a little bit of jogging and running if I'm feeling a bit more energetic. Um, and, you know, outside, well, within lockdown, um, that's been, you know, a lifesaver outside of lockdown then um you know it's it's love of music and theatre uh, which i'm sorely missing i have to say um visiting family back in wales walking on the beach in wales is something that i've definitely missed so it's the outdoors really but um i don't run marathons <laughs> and i guess so we we can't really not talk about uh, avoid the elephant in the room of of the covid-19 pandemic um we we're just reaching the the 12 month point of since the first case in the in the uk um, in terms of the impact of of COVID nineteen on on endoscopy in general, on colonoscopy, on um, bowel cancer screening, because I know that there's been a lot of work done on on that. Could you could you tell us what your views are and um, do you, your apprehensions surrounding that? 
Oh, gosh, yes, and I've got very mixed feelings about it. So at Northwick Park, um, as with your hospital, actually, we, you know, Northwick Park was, um, I think it's well accepted now, one, one of the first, if not the first and hardest to be hit. And uh, with the first wave last February, so February 2020. And very quickly, it became apparent to us that we were going to have to stop elective procedures because of the risk of bringing in um, patients for screening. We were still doing bowel scopes, so flexible sigmoidoscopy screening at that time. And it just felt totally counterintuitive and unsafe to be bringing completely well people who have no symptoms into the hospital when actually our department, uh, myself included, um, had COVID and were really quite unwell. So endoscopy nurses and doctors, uh, we were dropping, you know, several of us, you know, over the space of a week in March uh, went off sequentially. And so we couldn't actually deliver the service because we didn't have enough staff, but also it just felt wrong to be inviting people into the hospital. So I was... Uh, you know, amongst a group of people in the UK who felt that we had to stop bowel cancer screening. Um, the difficulty is, is that it's a juggernaut and stopping it was actually quite difficult. Um, and then restarting it was even more difficult. So we were ready to restart bowel cancer screening, um, you, you know, perhaps before uh, everyone else had, um, you know, given us the, the go ahead. Um, and undoubtedly, you know, um, Matt Rutter has published on this recently. Um, we are we haven't diagnosed as much cancer as we did this time, you know, two years ago. So there are missing cases, and that's really worrying, both from the symptomatic side and from the um, uh, screening side. And so, undoubtedly, the pandemic will have its effect going forward. We are still, we are back up now. We're, uh, we have recovered. I'm pleased to say we're one of the first units to fully recover our bowel cancer screening service. Bowel scope has obviously been paused. I think that probably, well, it's been stopped, sorry. Um, that probably would have happened anyway, I think. I think uh, the COVID pandemic really just was the nail in the coffin, really, for that programme. But there are, uh, as you'll know, there are plans to reduce the age for uh, fit test screening. So um, those people, rather than patients, those potential screening patients will be offered a test. Um, but we have got a backlog still. There's still a lot of catch up to do within the symptomatic service and some services are still trying to recover for bowel cancer screening. So I don't think we had any choice. Um, I think it is regrettable that we had to, you know, reduce uh, elective services it wasn't just endoscopy obviously however um you know the bsg and jag um and i can say this because i wasn't directly involved in either of these but they responded in an incredibly timely fashion uh, and in a really supportive way for units to deliver safe endoscopy with guidance coming out um, responding to the shifting sounds and the changes that have occurred and still occur um, you know, even a year on. So um, those professional societies and organisations have been instrumental in getting endoscopy back up uh, and running. And, you know, hopefully, along with the, the issues I was talking about with green endoscopy, it will make us, you know, think harder about doing any unnecessary procedures. We've really got to focus on the patients that really need endoscopy um, and not repeat endoscopy unnecessarily. So I think there will be some advantages to the pandemic. It's just that we're still playing catch up at the moment.
in terms of a more resilient system and 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 you know minimizing unnecessary procedures there are some 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 other green shoots that will come out of this I as think well that's right yes yeah yeah training of course has um you know as a trainee i've got to i've got to say for trainees i think it has been a really challenging time um and a lot of endoscopy training has been you know put to one side and i recognize that um but be reassured that again, you know, people in high places are focusing on that and trying to look at ways of accelerating training. Thank you. And and to leave off, if you had to pass on one piece of advice for an early career gastroenterology trainee or or someone considering applying for a training post in gastroenterology, what what would it be? Can I have two pieces of advice? Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So my two pieces of advice, I think, would be. Um, to create or to seize opportunity and that is uh, clinically as I've kind of alluded to earlier you know um, you know muscle your way in on endoscopy lists if there's no trainee there or in specialist clinics or what have you Um, get involved with things like BSG or JAG or local trainee groups um, because if you do that as a trainee um, you will carry that on into your uh, into your consultant career and you can only benefit from that so so create and seize those opportunities however make sure that you do have a good work-life balance you know and whether that's by for a period working part-time or uh you know making sure that you protect time at the weekend for family and friends and so on that is really important because you know it is uh, you know as they say it is a marathon not a sprint um, you're going to be a consultant for a very, very long time. Um, you don't have to get there, you know, uh, at a very young age. There's plenty of time to be a, a consultant. So so make sure your work-life balance is, is healthy. Sure. And thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.